in a hundred years, Christians may be known as those odd people who don't kill their children or their elderly. That striking prediction was recently made by a Christian ethicist, Stanley Hauervas. It's a prediction you may regard as uh, shocking, extreme even, but Hauervas doesn't seem to think so. Commenting on the progressive crumbling of Western morality, Hauervas points us to the trajectory of change in attitudes towards the weak. Even in our generation, there have been great changes in the way we view the weak and the vulnerable. Western societies which could not have conceived, say, of abortion 100 years ago now consider it a right. Nations which could not have imagined the old or the ill uh, being thought of as a dispensable commodity are now considering the legal ramifications of such terminations. Actually, if the pace of erosion continues, maybe in less than 100 years, however vast will be proved right, Christians will be those odd people who almost uniquely value their weak and their vulnerable and their old and the unborn. Well, whatever the future holds, how great a need there is for our nation to come back to the biblical view of life, not only to return to the doctrines of this book, but also to the duties that it implies, human being to human being. What immense need to reflect on long-forgotten principles and little-known passages of the Scripture, such as the one we'll consider this evening. If you would turn to 1 Timothy chapter 5, please. 1 Timothy chapter 5. It's a, a passage all about protecting the weak, the poor, the vulnerable, and the needy. It's a section reflecting God's compassionate heart for the poor and the needy. And it's a passage which calls upon the church to be a caring community, perhaps in increasing contrast to the world around us. Let's read 1 Timothy 5, verses 1 to 16. Paul continues to write to Timothy, do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. Give proper recognition to those widows who are really in need. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, these should first of all, learn to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family and so repaying their parents and grandparents, for this is pleasing to God. 
The widow, who is really in need and left all alone, puts her hope in God and continues night and day to pray and to ask God for help. But the widow, who lives for pleasure, is dead even while she lives. Give the people these instructions too, so that no one may be open to blame. If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for his immediate family, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. No widow may be put on the list of widows unless she is over 60, has been faithful to her husband, and is well known for her good deeds, such as bringing up children, showing hospitality, washing the feet of the saints, helping those in trouble, and devoting herself to all kinds of good deeds. As for younger widows, do not put them on such a list. For when their sensual desires overcome their dedication to Christ, they want to marry. Thus they bring judgment on themselves because they have broken their first pledge. Besides, they get into the habit of being idle and going about from house to house. And not only do they become idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying things they ought not to. So I counsel younger widows to marry, to have children, to manage their homes, and to give the enemy no opportunity for slander. Some have, in fact, already turned away to follow Satan. If any woman who is a believer, has widows in her family, she should help them and not let the church be burdened with them so that the church can help those widows who are really in need. Amen. And may God bless to us the reading of his holy and inspired word. Now, the main thrust of this section is obvious enough, isn't it? Paul, an apostle, is instructing Timothy, a young pastor. And he's teaching Timothy about the conduct of care within the church. Now, it's hardly surprising, is it, that as Paul addresses Timothy, a pastor, he should discuss with Timothy, at least for a few verses, the whole issue of pastoral care. For is that not what pastors are called to do? To preach the word and then to care for the congregation and the flock under their preaching. And so what we have in these verses is Paul, uh, an apostle with great authority, instructing Timothy, a pastor with lesser authority, yet with a congregation under his care about how the pastoral oversight is to be conducted. And what we have in these first 16 verses is, you might say, a crash course in pastoral care. Some of you, I know, have been doing various evenings with Rodney, two-hour sessions, three-hour speedy overviews of pastoral care. Well, if you thought that was fast, wait till you come to tonight's sermon. In 16 verses, Paul covers so much material in terms of how we are to care within the church. So what does Paul cover in this short course? Well, four areas I want to suggest to you. 
care within the church family, care within the natural family or the blood family, care for those without a family, and then counsel for some to find family. So let's plunge right in with Paul's first topic, care within the church family. Surely one of the most profound New Testament truths that the church is more than just a collection of people, it is a family of people. The church, of course, isn't a family in the natural sense. At least most of us in this church are not related by blood. Yet all of us, if we are Christians, are a family in a spiritual sense. Paul describes the church in 1 Timothy 3.15 as the household of God. We're God's household. We are, as it were, a spiritual family unit. And if we are part, therefore, of any local congregation, as we look around uh, those who are part of the same fellowship, they are not just fellow members They are our family members. Now, it is a spiritual truth that underpins what Paul says to Timothy in verses 1 and 2. Do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him, and notice the family image coming in here, as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. What's Paul saying here? He's saying that within the general picture of the family, there are specific relationships within the family. It's rather like when you show someone a large family photograph. You know, maybe at a wedding or something like that, and it's your entire extended family. There's 30 or so people. And to begin with, it just looks to the visitor as if uh, this is just one big family, but then what do you do? You begin to point out the particular relationships in the picture. You say, that's my father. Uh, That's my aunt. That's my, my son. That's my niece. Well, that's exactly what Paul does here. Except he says it to Timothy. He says, Timothy, that church there, they are your family. But let me point out to you, Timothy, that there are particular relationships that you have within the family. Notice those again in verses 1 and 2. Timothy, those older men are to be treated like fathers. The younger men who are below you in age are to be thought of as brothers, as contemporaries to you. Older women are like mothers, and younger women are like sisters. Now, you'll notice, if you're reading carefully, that Paul says a great deal more about the first and the last of those. In fact, he actually says almost twice as much about how Timothy is to relate to older men and younger women. We wonder why the reason, what the reason was for this. Perhaps it was that Timothy struggled most to relate to these two groups, older men and younger women. We certainly know that he struggled in his relationships with older men. It was probably older men who were teaching the deviant doctrines in this church. 
And we know from our last study, chapter 4, verse 11, wasn't it some of the older folk who were looking down their noses at Timothy, who was but a youth after all? Timothy had a a challenging relationship to negotiate with these older men. Some of them didn't respect him. And yet the difficult thing was that Timothy had to correct some of these men. How is Timothy to go about this? Well, says Paul to Timothy, do not rebuke an older man harshly. I'm not saying that you're not to correct him, But when you correct him, do not do it severely. Do not scold an older man as if he were your son. Think of him as a father. Now, I don't know what kind of relationship, good or bad, you've had with your father. But I certainly know in my situation that on those rare occasions, if I would ever feel to correct my father, I would do it with great carefulness, with gentleness, and with tact. That's what Paul's saying here. Do it respectfully. He's your your dad, you know. It's a bit of a challenge, I think, to those of us who are young or who are younger with a bracket of age above us that as we interact with those who are aged, we don't adopt the same attitudes that our society has towards the mature. So often older folk are spoken to, aren't they, in a terrible way. Loudly, harshly, ignorantly, as if they're irrelevant or stupid. If we're talking to a senior gentleman or a, or, or a senior lady within this church, just remember that's your dad and that's your mother you're talking to. But notice also that uh, uh, Timothy has given extended instructions too about the younger women at the end of the verse. Again, probably a group that Timothy had challenges in relating to. Sexual purity was as much a fight. The battle was as fierce in Timothy's day as it is for us today. Ephesus was at least, maybe more, sexually immoral than the city of Edinburgh is. Shrine prostitutes were all awash in the city. And yet into this hotbed of lust, Paul says uh, to Timothy, those younger men in in the fellowship, uh, treat them like sisters with all, that's the emphasizing word, with absolute purity. Not as sex objects. Tim, have that kind of pure kindred relationship of a brother and a sister. Where there's a close bond but there's no sexual element involved or implied. You think about some of your, your young uh, boys and, and girls, siblings. You know, they don't even like to kiss each other, do they? And yet they love each other to bits. I ask you, particularly to the men, as I, as I ask myself tonight, do I treat younger women as sisters with absolute purity? Do you realize, men, that there are only three possible relationships that you can have with a woman in this congregation? If she is significantly older than you and unmarriable to you, you are to regard her as your mother or your auntie or something like that. But Paul says here, your mother. If she is of a marriable age, 
But you are not married to her. She is your sister. And if you are treating her like your wife, it's probably because she's your wife. I was chatting to Peter about this. Peter said, what about, uh, what about daughters? And I guess that's true. That's a fourth relationship, at least in, in blood terms. But actually, I thought about that too. I, I think also your daughter comes under the, the same banner here. She's a younger sister. And sadly, that has to be said in some home situations today. She's your mother, she's your sister, or she's your wife. Now, I know this is opening a whole can of worms here, what the Bible teaches, but the Bible does that, doesn't it? I'm going to open the can here, and I'm just going to let the worms roam, and then I'm going to move on. But, but in, in biblical terms, guys, if you're dating, which of course wasn't around in the Bible, if you're dating, then right up to the moment that you marry that lady, she's your sister. Do you realize that? She is your sister. She's to be treated with all purity. She's either your sister or she's your wife. Something to chew over with the biscuit afterwards. Getting back to the overall point, though, let me ask simply this. How well are you relating across the ages and stages and genders in this church? Is there a group within the family that you are not relating well to? Maybe it is the elderly generation. Maybe there are attitudes that are unhelpful, whether it's going up the way or maybe if you're older, going down the way. We saw last week that the the older folk had an issue with Timothy they shouldn't have had, the younger man. This week we're saying that Timothy could have an issue with with the elderly in his church. Is the issue with the opposite sex or with your peers? Pastoral care begins when each of us maintains these basic relationships in the family we consider each other as family and we treat each other appropriately, there will be a lot of good pastoral care going on here before we get to any crisis. Now we move on secondly to care within the natural family. The remainder of this section, verses 3 to 16, now focuses on a specific group in the church who were in need of care. Widows. Widows, as today, were women whose husbands had died yet who as yet remained unmarried. There were apparently many widows in this church in Ephesus. It was apparently bulging with widows. And in these days, a widow was in a much more perilous situation, typically, than widows might be today. Though there are parallels in some ways. Not only was there the grief of losing their loved one, but women in these cultures had their status and their financial security bound up with their husbands. So when their husband died, they were left in dire financial straits. Now, how should the church care for these many widows? Paul's answer might surprise you initially. Because the first thing Paul says is, actually, there are some of these widows you shouldn't be caring for, church. Look at what he says in verses 3 and 4. Give proper recognition to those widows who are really in need. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, these should first learn to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family. Paul here distinguishes between two groups of widows. Widows who are in real need, those without a family, natural family, and those widows 
who do not have this network of support. Or as Paul puts it, who don't have children or grandchildren. Now, in in, in the scenario where there is a, a family around, Paul says it is not the spiritual family, but the natural blood family who should first step up to the mark. The widow's sons or, or daughters or grandsons or granddaughters should be first to come to the aid of their vulnerable family member. Paul actually belabors the many reasons why a family should do this. I'll not go into them in great depth. I'll simply list them for you. First of all, he says in verse 4, it repays parents and grandparents. They paid out a lot of sweat and money and time and love on you. Wouldn't it be lovely, says Paul, verse 4, if you would would repay them in their old age? Secondly, in in verse 4, he simply says, it is pleasing to God. Do we realize this? That when families step up and step in, it's pleasing to God. A third reason Paul adds in verse 8 is that if we don't care for our natural families, we'll be poor witnesses. Look at what he says here in verse 8. If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for his immediate family, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. You see, people in Roman society, in Paul's day, the Romans actually made provision for their elderly. They had it written into their law that you were to look after folk like elderly widows. And Paul's saying here, well, if the pagans are doing it, what a disgrace it is if even the church isn't doing it. It would be a denial of our very Christian profession. And then in verse 16, finally Paul adds one more rationale. He says that when a family helps out their own members, it frees up the church family to help those who are in real need. Now, there is much to concern here, uh, to consider by way of application. The easiest thing to be clear on is the principle. I think the practice, we need to be more careful and sensitive, but the principle is pretty clear, isn't it? That natural families should desire and act to offer support to their own needy relatives. If we see an elderly relative in our family, in dire straits, and we have the means to help, we should do so. We should do so. We shouldn't expect the church just to come in with the cavalry. Now, that sadly needs to be said again in our society. I imagine in some parts of the world, maybe even where Andrew comes from, there wouldn't be so much of a culture of this, but we live in such an individualistic society. Families are broken up so much into pieces. And there are many situations, even if there are children and grandchildren around, they're not always interested. An old Dutch proverb says, it seems easier uh, for one poor father to rear ten children than for ten rich children to care for one poor father. That's overstated, but it's rooted in some kind of reality, isn't it? Christian families should be a contrast to that. Now, of course, how the support is given may vary. I suppose in the first century, probably the way it would have worked would have simply have been, if it was an elderly widow, she would have been taken into the home of her son or her 
daughter or grandson or granddaughter. That would be the, the means by which the, the provision would be made. Come live with us. Live under our roof. Live on the provision of the wage of our house. Now, of course, that still might be one application of this passage, mightn't it? I have a, one elderly grandmother left, and when she uh, lost her husband 11 years ago, one of my aunts and uncles opened their home and uh, gave her a room and brought her in. And she's one of the family. She's still there. She's in her late 80s. And she's part of their family now. That's one way to apply this. Very honoring way. Now that said, of course, we live in days of, of other kinds of provision, don't we? And it's tremendous some of the things that are available in terms of nursing homes and, and home helps and all this kind of support. And frankly, I know of some, at least some elderly relatives who wouldn't want to live with their sons or their daughters. The issue is not where they stay, whether it's their home, your home, or the nursing home. The, the issue is simply this. Is true and genuine support being offered or not? And as families, we need to honestly face up to that question. Are, are we stepping up to the mark or are we ducking out of our responsibility? I think also in relation to this, there is an application here that the needs of our immediate family must take priority over the needs even of the church family. And that's something else that Paul is saying here. And I want to encourage some of you tonight, either you're here or maybe you're, you're listening into this, and you're actually investing lots of your time at the moment, lots of your, your effort just now. And you're pouring yourself into maybe an elderly relative, maybe an elderly mother, someone that you're caring for and looking after. And you don't have the same time to give to the church these days. I want to commend you for that because that is a biblical priority that we should have in these situations. Now, if you're still alert and awake at this point, and some of you are looking a little bit sleepy, uh, you might be asking this question, what, what becomes though, of those without a natural family? I mean, it's okay for those who have the, the kids and the grandkids. But what about those who have nothing? Paul goes on now to address that. Care for those without a family. This is actually the first category of widows that Paul mentions in verse 3. In that verse and in verses 5 and 16... They are described as the widows who are really in need. Not that other widows don't have needs, but these folks are really in need because they have no support or provision around them. It's actually a, a bittersweet situation. You might think it's all negative, uh, but it's not all because Paul says uh, there in verse 5, uh, she is all alone, but she trusts in God. This uh, widow has no one else to turn to. Who can she turn to for help? Well, there only is the Lord. And so night and day she comes before him in prayer and she pleads for his help. Maybe you're a, a, a widow or a, or a widower. And you're very isolated in your situation. One of the things that God wants to bring out through that is a greater dependence on him. He knows that you're desperate. And he deigns that realizing that you will actually trust him all the more fully. 
You know, most of us who are still married at this point, we don't even realize it, but we lean so heavily on our spouses, don't we? We lean so heavily on our families. When you don't have that, all you have is the Lord. And the Lord can maybe produce in us a kind of dependence that hitherto we've not seen for many years. Now, that's not to say that God wants to leave you isolated. He may produce that through it, but he doesn't want you to remain unsupported. Paul says in verse 3 that, that these widows in real need should be given proper recognition. We're going to see this uh, idea of recognition, honor, coming up again next week in terms of pastors. It's a kind of euphemism. It's not just speaking of uh, esteeming somebody, but it's talking about financial support. Now, there are qualifications to receive this support. We've already said that uh, the widow must be in real need. She must not have uh, other providers. Moreover, Paul adds in verse 9, that no widow may be put on the list of widows until she is 60. She must be over 60. This was probably to call, again, the large numbers. It was probably to ensure, too, that it was unlikely that this widow would remarry. They were quite unlikely because many widows didn't live beyond, many people didn't live beyond 60 in these days to remarry. So don't put her on the list, says Paul. Now, there is a little bit of disagreement. I won't bore you with the whole of the ins and outs of it as to what this list exactly designates. In verse 9, you see that there, the list of widows. Uh, it, it either is simply the list of those who were on the pastoral fund. You know, those who were getting, who were getting the gifts and, and the financial contributions. Some of her have suggested that because there are also a number of, of character qualifications and service qualifications, you, you also notice those there, uh, that, that this was actually something of a service operation going on as well. A kind of order of widows, where the widows weren't just receiving money, but they were also giving back of their, of their spare time and of their hospitality to the fellowship. Uh, now, I'm not really too sure myself on this. I'm not fully persuaded that there is a, necessarily an official order being shown here. Uh, certainly, in later centuries, there, there was an order of widows in the third and fourth centuries. But it seems to me that Paul here is speaking of their past service, not of some future service that they're going to do. What Paul is essentially saying here is they need to be genuine Christians. They need to be those who have the, ne- the necessary character and the essential kinds of, of service that would show them to be believers. Because you can just imagine in this situation, hey, the church around the corner, the church down the road are giving out handouts to widows. You can just imagine everybody, religious or irreligious, getting in in the act. They're giving out money. And Paul says, just be sure that they have the character of a Christian, that they've got a track record of service that will show that they are genuine Christians. Now, again, there's just so much here that we could unpack in terms of this provision for the really needy in the church. Uh, But surely, uh, part of the principle is this, that the church must be giving its focused attention and its uh, focused finance and its focused pastoral time to those who are most needy in its midst. It's contrary to what we sometimes think, isn't it? We sometimes get this idea that the the pastoral care must be completely non-discriminatory. 
that everyone, as it were, should get exactly the same package, you know, if they're in the same situation. That's exactly not what Paul says here. He says that the church should focus its attention on those in most need. Now, we try in this fellowship to do just that. We have a pastoral benevolence fund. What's it called, Rodney? What's the name of it? The the Fellowship Group Fund. And every communion service, we have boxes on the stairs, and that's what that money is for. You can put money in, and we use that to give to the most needy. And it's not just elderly widows, it's maybe lone parents or people in similar difficult financial situations. And similarly, this also works out in other ways too, doesn't it? You take the situation of a bereavement. It is a very different situation if Rodney or Peter go into uh, the home of a, of a bereaved older person uh, to find that there is uh, maybe a son or a daughter present as opposed to the widow who has nobody. And I, I've seen firsthand uh, in these sorts of situations, likes of Peter and Rodney offering just much, much more help than they would usually do. Because this elderly person is just in no position to arrange all the practicalities of a funeral. And maybe there's other practical things that they need help with. In one sense, pastoral care needs to be discriminatory, depending on what kind of family help is involved. There's there's much grist for the grind here. And uh, maybe Rodney will do an ad hoc kind of pastoral care session down in the lounge where we can discuss and tease all this out. But we need to move on to our fourth and final section. We've had care within the church family, a care within the natural family, care for those without family, and fourthly and finally, counsel that some would find family. Uh, this maybe seems the strangest point of all. What Paul counsels in these verses. Indeed, you may have found it even in the reading. Uh, Paul's tone turns a little bit harsh towards the end of this section, as he talks about this group called Younger Widows in verses 11 to 15. For example, he says that younger widows are not to be put on the widows list. Well, they're under 60, obviously, so they're not going to be involved. They're not to be financially supported, says Paul. Seems a little bit hard, doesn't it? But we need to examine Paul's reasoning as it unfolds here. Verse 11 For when their sensual desires overcome their dedication to Christ, they want to marry. If you look forward to verse 12 too, you'll see Paul mentioning a pledge there. And reading between the lines, it seems as though some of these younger widows had pledged themselves to a life of singleness. They had been widowed early, and then they had kind of got up in the church and said, I'm giving the rest of my life in sole dedication to serving Christ. I'm not going to remarry. I'm giving myself to the Lord. And yet Paul says that by his observation, by his experience, of course, this didn't last. Their dedication to Christ would be eventually overcome and overwhelmed by their desire to remarry. Verse 12, thus they bring judgment on themselves because they have broken their first pledge. They they pledged to be single in service for Christ, and then they went back on the pledge before you knew it. Uh, News came through. They were engaged. And then Paul gives some further reasoning why they shouldn't be supported. Verse 13. Besides, they get into the habit of being idle and going about from house to house. 
And not only did they become idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying things they ought not to. Now here we really see why Paul was keen that these particular women were not to be given a financial allowance. Uh, They were abusing it. These particular folks were sponging off the church. That's what Paul's saying here. They were claiming church support, and they were using this to sit around idly. Well, they were also going about in their spare time from house to house. Uh, They didn't have phones to gossip on in these days or, or on the MSN chat, so they had to go to people's houses to do the gossiping, talk about other people, Uh, Paul also says in verse 6, speaking of them, that they were living for pleasure rather than living for God. So there was maybe even some very immoral behavior involved. In fact, it's so serious that Paul says in verse 15 that some of these women had totally gone off the rails. They had turned away to follow Satan rather than continue to follow Christ. And with such a range of problems surrounding these younger widows in a single state, Paul gives them two instructions, which I think are just so apt. First of all, he says, we've already seen this, verse 11, don't give them money. Don't give them financial support that lets them cruise. And secondly, he says that he counsels them, verse 14, to marry, to have children, to manage their homes, and to give the enemy no opportunity for slander. It makes sense, doesn't it? If in their singleness, and they're abusing it, if in their singleness their own Christian profession and commitment is being undermined, they would be much better to be married where they won't have the time for such things. Now, we must be very careful with Scripture, mustn't we? Uh, That we don't take a particular instance and simply generally apply it to every situation. I think the principle uh, established here is is not that every young widow should remarry. Uh, We can think of Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 in a very different situation. Paul said that it's a good thing to be single, that it has its advantages in some situations. If that singleness is given over to Christ, it's a good thing. So you've got two things here, don't you? You've got 1 Timothy 5, where Paul counsels some widows, uh, younger single widows, to remarry. uh, And uh, you've got him over in 1 Corinthians 7, and he says it's good to be single. So how do we marry the two of those things together? Don't get married, get married. Well, I think the point is this. And this is not just to young widows, but all who are single this evening. Singleness can be a great blessing, and it can also be a great curse, depending on how you use it. Do you use your singleness to indulge your sinfulness or to magnify the Savior? That's the question that this passage raises. See, what God wants is selfless, serving single people. Not self-absorbed single people. Are you single and selfish? I've heard uh, single folk say to me that they are deliberately extending their time of singleness because they're too selfish to get married. 
They're too selfish to have children. Now, that's not something that I'm coming up with. They've said that. And I know that's not the case with many of you here tonight. But in our culture, amazingly, many people have that attitude today. They want a bit more fun and a bit more freedom. And I think if Paul were were around tonight and you were saying that to him, with a smile on your face, I think Paul would be trying to wipe it off. And I think he would be saying to you, I think he would be counseling you to get married. Because there's nothing that confronts our selfishness better than marriage. And then when you have children, it gets even worse. It's just impossible to be selfish. Find a family. That's what Paul's saying to these widows. Now, now, now let me just caveat that by by saying, of course, I recognize that many of you here tonight who are single are not single by choice. I understand that. In that case, there is still a challenge for you to be a sacrificial, serving, single person. That's what Paul would want. Don't be like these young widows. They're so much like many of the other single people in our culture who are not Christians. Don't be like that. You could be a great benefit and asset to the kingdom that we married folk cannot be because of some of the commitments that we have. Well, there is a lot to reflect on and time has run out. Perhaps there is too much to process really this evening. And maybe this is one of these sermons that would be beneficial even to listen to again. You can download these online and you can reflect back on just the the amount of content that we've covered Maybe this evening you're being challenged about the way you relate to different groups within the church. Maybe tonight you're being called to step up to the mark in your family situation with those relatives that you just haven't been visiting in a long time. Maybe there's a challenge about how we as a church meet the needs of our most needy constituents. Or maybe there's a challenge about how we use our singleness or how we abuse our singleness. If as a church we take seriously some of these lessons in pastoral care, you know, we will stand out, hugely, in contrast from the society around us. And perhaps in a hundred years, Christians, tragically, will be the odd ones who care for their widows and who don't kill their children and the elderly. Let's pray together.